Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we are back in our uh, summer series, even though we know it's fall right now, so let's just call it the fall series. We're talking about salvation, and I am loving this, and I thought, why not just keep going? Because it is such a wonderful topic, and there's lots to be uh, people to talk to. Our guest today is Dr. David Clark, and he is uh, used to be the dean at um, Bethel Seminary, and we're glad to have him with us today. And, of course, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Kapsner, so it's going to be a wonderful hour. Gentlemen, welcome. David, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. And you know Peter, so you guys can go ahead and talk to each yeah, other. Yeah, hey, David. Uh, you know, I have to admit, I uh, confess right up front here that uh, uh, you're pretty favorable in my mind as, as a former mentor of mine, so I try to be as, as critically minded as I can, but I think pretty much anything you say I'm just going to buy into today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a dangerous position, but I, I like it. That's great. Well, it's great. We were chatting just uh, before we started here, David, and I remember one thing when I was uh, at the the seminary where you were dean as well is that uh, as we talked about salvation and we talked about evangelism, a word so often associated with salvation— and then we would talk about discipleship, which is a word that seems somehow it, it came after salvation. One of the things that I think we can get confused by, and I would love for you to talk with our listeners about this, is that um, salvation and evangelism is, is, is not sort of independent or separate from discipleship, where, you know, we, we have to make sure we have salvation, <clears throat> but then discipleship maybe becomes almost optional. I, I don't think Jesus had anything like that in mind when he was saying to his disciples, follow me. So if you could just talk a bit about how evangelism and discipleship or salvation and following and works, like how does that all sort of work together? Sure. Well, that is a huge, huge question. Uh, but I will just say, you know, that, that in our thinking about theological topics, and really I think a lot of uh, topics, politics, you name it, we have to be able to think about things that are distinct and yet related, things that are different fundamentally and also in an organic relationship. So think of a husband and wife. There's a two-in-one unity there. They are distinct as persons. They are unified as a couple. And so uh, there are many, many things like this where people overemphasize the distinction and forget the relation or overemphasize the relation and forget the distinction. So you've got to sort of thread the needle here uh, between uh, distinctions and relationships. I would say that evangelism and discipleship are distinct. They're, they're definable. They're, dis- they're not the same thing exactly. And, and yet, just like a husband and a wife, a man and a woman are different, they're distinct, obviously they can also be in a deep organic relationship and are meant to be in relationships. I think if we use that as an analogy, we could say evangelism and discipleship are intended uh, to be deeply connected, even though they're not the same thing exactly. Hmm. So I don't know if that helps, but I think that's a sort of critical thinking skill if we could apply that to this and many other topics. So taking then the salvation piece of this, David, before we sort of relate it to evangelism uh, or to discipleship, rather, what would you say, how would you characterize salvation? What, what is the invitation here that we experience? Is it, is it solely getting right with God so that 
um, we can secure our eternity, uh, eternal destiny. And obviously that is such a big part of salvation. But is there something bigger in this that would help maybe connect it then ultimately to discipleship and the journey that we have in this world? Yeah, absolutely. I would see salvation being a big topic, not a narrow, thin kind of thing. It's a rich tapestry, not a not a cheesy cheesecloth. Uh, and so when you think about the concept of salvation, it really is the rescue from all that has gone wrong. Now, if you have a very narrow view of sin, like I sinned and I disobeyed God, well, you know, that is kind of a partial understanding of sin. Uh, but if you have that sort of narrow picture of what sin is all about, then, of course, you are likely to have a rather narrow picture or a thin picture of what salvation is about. It's basically fixing that problem between God and me. But the thing is, I, I sin against God, but I also sin against my neighbor. I, I destroy others. I destroy relationships. I destroy myself. I destroy community. Um, and so sin has this wide-ranging concentric circles like throwing a rock in the pond and watching the ripples go out. And so salvation is really God's work of resolving all the ripples, not just that first piece of I'm disconnected from God, but God is at work redeeming me and repairing the damage that I caused to myself when I sin. Uh, For instance, a drug addict is sinning against God, but he's also destroying his body, right? Um, and similarly, God is at work, uh, working to restore community, to restore uh, the, the earth, to restore relationships, to, to restore marriages, and so forth. So that's a much richer, much fuller picture of God's restoration process than the, the sort of thin, skinny model which just says, I've sinned, I'm out of step with God, uh, Jesus is going to do something on the cross, and yep, I get to go to heaven. And that's the end of the story. That All that is true, and also that is just partial. Mm, so, David, when you talk about this idea of a richer tapestry instead of a thinner model of, of salvation, does that then connect to that famous Pauline passage where it says, so work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. There's There's some idea going on here where God's salvation is being worked out in day-to-day life in a variety of repairing sorts of ways. Right, exactly. You know, God does instantaneously forgive my sin as I receive Christ by faith. And also, God sets about a transformation process, which uh, is about reshaping my character and reshaping my person. Part of that is reparative work, uh, you know, for things that have been damaged. Part of that is maturing work for things that haven't grown up yet. Um, And that reparative and maturing work uh, is actually creating the kind of person who will actually actually enjoy the joy of heaven. I mean, in a sense, uh, you know, God's presence is this deep, deep joy. But the fact is, I have to have internal to myself the capability of appreciating and enjoying God. And so God sets about transforming my character such that I become the kind of person who can enjoy God forever, uh, you know, as the Catechism says, which is kind of our ultimate end, uh, to, to be in relation to God. 
Hmm. And David, I, I think about how many times that Bill and I have heard listeners uh, just describe the struggle that they may have with sin and wonder why they continue to struggle with maybe the same sin over and over again or, or don't have a sense of freedom or, or God's, as you've said, a reparative work is not active in their life in some sort of way. Uh, I would love it if you, you could speak to sort of, um, again, referencing that Philippians passage, work out your salvation. Um, what is the role that God has in sort of the, the working out or the breaking of power of sin in our life? And what role do we have? Is it simply that we open ourselves to access that power? And, and this starts connecting to discipleship a little bit here. Like, what is our role in, in participating in that salvation in our life? Right, right. Well, I love that passage from Philippians. And again, this is a distinction and relation kind of thing, right? Both of these things are important. There are some kinds of theologies that put a so much emphasis on the grace of God that if I were to lift my pinky finger to try to follow Christ, it would be, oh, salvation by works. Well, that's an, old, that's an exaggeration, you know. And then on the other hand, you have some folks who are very much into, well, it's all about me and I've got to do the right thing. And uh, so they're achievers, you know. And, it, and th- to talk at all about the Holy Spirit in their life and the power of the Spirit, it's like, well, we don't want to get too crazy in that whole direction. So, you know, it's very possible to sort of fall off on both sides on that on that text. God is working, and also I'm expected to follow in His work and to uh, to obey that work, to allow that work to do its thing in my heart and in my life. Practically speaking, I'm a big believer in the concept of habits, and I think uh, that a single action repeated starts a pattern. Uh, the pattern repeated becomes a habit. That habit repeated becomes character, and character repeated ultimately becomes virtue. And so I don't become a loving person in one minute. I become a loving person by uh, sacrificially choosing over and over and over and over again, such that it becomes habitual uh, you know, to put the other person first in, in my life. And so the work out your salvation part, I think, is is just the discipline. Um, and by the, word, the, by the way, the word discipline and the word disciple are related, <laughs> similar words, right? Uh, the discipline of doing the right thing in a small way and then building on that uh, gradually until character and virtue develop in my life. <clears throat> and David, so for somebody that is trying to work out that process in their life and, and build habits and work with God around the salvation journey, uh, is there, there must be some sort of encouragement because I, I do know that people really just think, I, I can't stay in this process anymore. But, but if we picture God as where, as we sin, his grace abounds that much more as we're in that journey. I mean, is there some encouragement to stay in that as that transformation is happening? Right. Uh, I do think that uh, scripture is filled with all kinds of statements regarding uh, encouragement. Uh, there's encouragement not to be afraid, encouragement to be patient, um, encouragement to uh, be persistent over time. Um, and, um, you know, I think that um, there's also a great deal of encouragement in terms of uh, the body of Christ and so finding other people to walk with me in my journey. So a person who has a besetting sin, uh, the the statistics and the and the research would say that trying to deal with that by yourself is almost a hopeless case, a hopeless cause. And so, you know, finding a person who will walk with you and be your accountability person um, is, an, is an essential aspect of getting over the hump initially as we seek to develop the kinds of habits that I've been talking about that lead to character and virtue.
Mm-hmm. So those are all things that the Scripture, you know, would encourage us to do. That's wonderful. Dr. Uh, David Clark is our guest, uh, and Peter Kapster and I are going to be back after a short break. Thanks for joining me. We'll be right back. Salvation Series. Dr. David Clark is our special guest today, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Kapsner, and I'm Dr. Bill Arnold, although I don't bring the doctor part up very often because I don't have an actual degree, and I'm not a doctor. That's why I don't bring that's, it up very that, often. That's, that seems fair. That seems, that seems yeah, well established. It is. Thank you for that. Um, so, uh, David, let me ask you this. Uh, when I think of the thief on the cross, which is just this wonderful illustration of salvation at the very last uh, hour of life, Will you remember me? And Jesus says, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. And then I go over to Romans uh, chapter 10, and in verse uh, uh, 9 it says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I was thinking that declaring with your mouth, uh, how often is that necessary? And if if you uh, don't do that right away, when does, when does that gift of salvation really take hold? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the gift of salvation is something that God is in charge of, of course, not us. And uh, so I could well imagine that a person uh, would uh, indicate their faith in Christ in some manner other than using a, a verbal uh, response. So, you know, you confess with your lips, well, yes, uh, but there could be a person, for instance, who is in uh, a traditional evangelistic ser- uh, service, and the invitation is to raise your hand. And so the person raises their hand. It doesn't actually say anything verbally. That's so not really tied in with uh, the, the, the physical action so much as it is the heart commitment of faith or trust in Christ. And so I think at that point, um, you know, as a person is indicating this trust, they could be praying silently in their, within their own consciousness. Uh, they could be speaking out loud. They could be raising their hand. Uh, for some people, even uh, I'm going to submit to baptism. And for them, that action is the action by which they're signifying uh, to Christ, I'm going to place my faith in you. So there's a lot of different ways to do that physically. Uh, but the common thread, I think, is this idea of signifying or indicating to Christ uh, and, of course, Christ knows this. God is omniscient and so knows all things, uh, indicating this act of faith. And at that point, uh, a person is in the family of God. Now, of course, they are born into the family of God. Uh, regeneration, uh, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you are born from above. And so you would be born as an infant. And, of course, the expectation is that growth will, will follow that. But certainly a person is in the family of God once they indicate by uh, some by some action uh, or thought or prayer that they are putting, placing their trust in God. And David, as you talk about that, that's the the heart of this is that in, there is some indication that you've placed your trust in God. Um, could, could you speak a little bit more to just about maybe the expression of it? And, and you referenced baptism, and that that's sort of intriguing to me. I'm sure there's a number of listeners that have wondered what what is the role of baptism, and, and how does it relate to maybe saying a prayer of faith, for example, or, or other ways in which people have indicated as. To, to be baptized, to be baptized is not simply just to, to get then salvation somehow. Like, what is the role of baptism in all of this? 
Right. No, I, I did not say that if you're baptized, you're automatically saved. What I, what I was saying is that there are numbers of ways, different ways, in which you could sort of indicate by using different parts of your body to communicate, uh, you know, that you're trusting in God. I know of a person who was actually like the thief on the cross, you know, very close to death, mm. and the only way they could communicate was blinking their eyes. And so the person was with them and saying, you know, this is probably your last chance, John, would you like to receive Christ? If you would like to receive Christ, place your faith in him uh, for salvation. Um, he mm. will welcome you into his his arms. Blink your eyes. And so he blinked his eyes. And so, you know, you can do a number of different things to indicate that heart commitment of trust and faith. Uh, that's my point. Now, And baptism could be one of those. Now, if you submit to baptism as just a kind of meaningless ritual, like, okay, my mother wants me to get baptized, okay, I'll get baptized, then it's meaningless. And it wouldn't have any kind of uh, impact at all. I, I think it would be almost sacrilegious in that case to go through something as precious and meaningful as baptism, uh, you know, just because a family member pressured you to do it. Uh, in the in the proper way of thinking about it, uh, you know, in the New Testament way of thinking about it, baptism is a way of sort of publicly expressing your faith. And so it would certainly be the case that many people would express their faith uh, through a word, typically, or a prayer, um, and then kind of uh, confirm that publicly by uh, indicating for all symbolically that they are trusting in Christ for salvation. I think the uh, Philippian jailer example is a is a is a great one. Uh, so he believes. Well, well, what shall we do? Well, be baptized, and uh, that was a, a natural progression to go from an act of faith to an expression that is communal in nature that others can see. Mm. And David, maybe a trickier question in the same vein around uh, baptism. I know that. A lot of people, and, and you've been around the church for so many different years and many different kinds of traditions and, and even understand some of the origins of these traditions. But I, but I think about listeners that maybe grew up in a tradition where infant baptism was practiced and that, that was seen as somehow part of salvation or other churches that do practice infant baptism, but it's more akin to sort of a dedication kind of thing. Uh, could you just speak broadly to that topic and, and maybe give some insight as to some of the history and how we can understand some of these things? Sure, sure. <clears throat> the the concept of uh, being baptized as an infant, uh, I would be convicted biblically, um, you know, is is, uh, is something that um, may have happened. So we reference the Philippian jailer, for example, and people who are from a Presbyterian tradition or, or Lutheran or Catholic traditions, some Methodist traditions, where these uh, where the practice of infant baptism is sort of the norm. Uh, they would they would point to something like the Philippian jailer's uh, family, where it says he was you know he's baptized and his household. And the assumption here is, uh, or the the claim here, a little bit vague from the text, but uh, the claim is that well everybody that would be children, you know even servants. I mean the whole clan, everybody in the household would have been baptized in one in one moment. I think the. The idea of um, infant baptism, you know, grew very early in the history of the church. It was uh, in the context of what later became the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the idea was that um, if, if a person is baptized um, as an infant, then this takes away the sin 
that Adam has uh, bequeathed to us. So the sin that we inherit from Adam, you know, is, is sort of taken care of by baptism. But then there would be other sacraments, according to that theology, that one would need to follow in order to continue uh, in the process of salvation. Now, others who are more sort of Protestant and maybe Reformation in their orientation uh, would see the concept, uh, especially, I guess I would say, the believers' churches. So here we would be talking about people like uh, Baptists or Assemblies of God, um, these kinds of churches seeking to be sort of more straightforwardly uh, biblical um, and not as much um, sort of being influenced uh, by the traditions that grew up around the, the Scripture, would, would want to emphasize that it is the act of faith that's key, and baptism becomes an, an act of obedience uh, that follows that act of faith. So this is a controversy, and it's not something that you know Orthodox Christians have uh, sort of agreed to or settled in a, in a way that is Orthodox for all time. Uh, for instance, the deity of Jesus is sort of an absolute Orthodox teaching, and if you don't agree to that, then you're just not an Orthodox Christian. Whereas uh, the mode of baptism and the recipients of baptism, these are these are things where people who are basically orthodox and seeking to be biblical can have some differences of opinion. Mm. One thing I would say, though, that there is a difference between those who think that infant baptism sort of confers salvific grace. It confers some salvific benefit. Uh, that would be a sort of sacramental view, as you in that traditional Catholic thinking. Uh, would head, would sort of tend in that direction. Uh, not every single Catholic person, but you know, historic Catholic thinking would would say that infant baptism confers salvation and and grace uh, on a person. Versus others, say evangelically minded, biblically minded Presbyterians, who will often say that the uh, the act of baptism is a sign that this child is a member of the covenant community. And so it's sort of a, a promise uh, that God will sustain this child and bring this person uh, into salvation uh, when they are older and able to make their own decision to follow Christ. So that would be more of a non-sacramental view of infant baptism. Um, and if you think of it that way, then uh, there's a closer connection, I think, between that non-sacramental view of infant baptism and what other churches would practice around the idea of dedicating, uh, you know, dedication. Baptists would notice that Jesus was dedicated in the temple, but also baptized by John the Baptist as an adult. Uh, and so, you know, make a distinction between dedicating a child and baptizing a believer. So interesting. Uh, David, we're going to take a little break. Dr. David Clark is our guest as we continue our fall salvation series. Dr. Peter Kapsner. And myself, we can take a question. If you've heard something you'd like some clarification on or you'd like to ask a question, let us know what it is, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. If it's easier for you to remember my email address, it's bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back.
We are back with our Fall Salvation Series. We're continuing, Peter Kapsner and myself. Our guest is Dr. David Clark. And I hope he's still there. Are you still there, David? I'm here. Oh, good. He didn't go anywhere. All right, here's what I used to think. When I came to faith in Christ, I thought that the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, were all now on like a smorgasbord table that I could go pick up and have access to. That's what I used to think. And then I, I think, came to the understanding that my heart of stone got taken out and my heart of flesh got put in. And with that came a brand new operating software that through the power of the Holy Spirit, those are all things I now have in me. Well, I think that's an interesting analogy or metaphors that you're using there, operating system. Um, and uh, I would say, just to clarify one thing, the text says the fruit of the Spirit. There, it's a singular, not a plural. Okay. I do know some people who speak of the fruits of the Spirit, plural, and there are nine of them, I think. And they say, well, I've got seven of them pretty well under control. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the idea here is uh, it's, a, it's not a pick and choose. It's not a cash and carry. It's, uh, it's supposed to be like the whole thing comes together as a package deal. So operating system is an interesting metaphor that I haven't thought of before, but I, I do like that as a, as a picture of how this might work. Um, and the intention, I think, of the Lord is that, uh, you know, the whole list becomes uh, part of my character. And so when we spoke before about developing habits which grow into character and become virtues, uh, you know, these are um, a list of the virtues or of a series of virtues uh, that we should aspire to develop in our hearts and in our lives. Yeah, and David, alongside of that, in terms of the operating system piece of it, and, and Bill's referencing this idea of, of the spirit active in our lives, I, there's a number, and I don't know if you're seeing it in similar trends in, in your educational settings or in the churches in which you work, but I'm, I've, over the last three or four years, I've taken a lot more questions from young people, it seems, uh, and I don't exactly know why or where it's coming from, but they are, are beginning to emphasize the idea that, yeah, I chose um, some expression of saying I've decided to follow Jesus and, and some salvation expression of that, but there's getting to be this increasing emphasis on almost a secondary baptism of the Spirit that, w- that would maybe bring these gifts or bring something different. And, and I don't know if you're seeing anything along those lines, but I would love it if you could speak to just the idea of the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, does that have to do with our salvation journey? Is that something different? What was going on in the biblical text when we see these words? How do we understand that phrase, the baptism of the Spirit? as it relates to salvation. Sure. Well, big topic there, and there's a whole stream of theology uh, which grows back to John and Charles Wesley. So John Wesley uh, is the founder and the the source of Methodist and Wesleyan thinking, ultimately uh, other movements such as uh, holiness movements grew out of that. Um, and the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements grew out of that as well. And so you have this whole stream of theology uh, that emphasizes, you know, sort of a second special moment of, uh, of grace. And uh, frankly, there are sort of differences of opinion. And again, uh, this is not an orthodoxy like the deity of Jesus, but uh, maybe a second, if you can think of a bullseye of a target, which would be absolutely essential doctrines like the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Uh, In the second ring would be things that are very important, but maybe not quite to the same level of importance, uh, you know, as the deity of Jesus. And I would say this second work concept is, is part of that. 
Um, and so historically, that's where it came, and it got tied in with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And um, it, that teaching became particularly significant in what we now call the Pentecostal movements. And so many wonderful Christian folk who are part of those movements would see uh, this particular moment, a specific point in time where you go from being sort of a carnal Christian to being a super Christian or from being a baby Christian to being a more deeply committed spiritual Christian. And um, so I can only give my perspective on that. From my perspective, I, I see the, the growth in a Christian's life um, being uh, really a whole series of crisis moments, you could say. Uh, and, and, in, and in fact, every time you face a temptation, there is a sense of crisis. Are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the wrong thing? And the more often when you follow the Spirit and uh, apply the power of the Spirit, um, use good wisdom, etc., and do the right thing, every time you do that, you sort of build muscle uh, in the direction of doing the right thing. And so I'm more of a gradualist in terms of my theology uh, and less of a sort of a, a punctiliar moment where suddenly I go from triple-A baseball to major league baseball in one jump. Um, and um, there's a difference of opinion on that. I, I think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as something that every Christian has experienced. And uh, for we are all baptized by one spirit into the body, Paul says. And so I, I think of that, the phrase, the baptism of the spirit, referring to uh, the experience of being ushered into the family of God. In other words, it happens at conversion. And it is not, in my theology, a second thing that happens a lot, a, n a number of weeks or years later, uh, you know, in this second moment where I somehow move from being a sort of carnal, low class or, you know, a baby Christian. And then in one big jump, uh, I, I jump up and become a more spiritual or fully baptized Christian. Um, so uh, there are two theologies here. One is more of a gradualist kind of view, and one is, uh, is one that puts a, a great deal of emphasis on this second crisis of, of uh, transformation in one's heart. Mm -hmm. Got a question from a listener, uh, David. What, what is an Orthodox Christian? Well, uh, that's a good question, and some, somewhat debated, but I, I think the, the core idea here is that orthodoxy would be right doctrine. And so the church has defined, based on Scripture, certain key doctrines uh, that, that define uh, a person who's, a, who's an Orthodox Christian. And uh, many of these things have to do with uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the deity of Jesus, the deity of the Spirit, uh, and uh, the reliability of the Bible, the sort of centrality of the Bible, you know, a couple of these kinds of things. Um, and so if a person says, you know, I'm a Christian, but I deny that Jesus is the Son of God, I think he was just a great teacher, uh, according to the history of theology, that person would not be uh, an Orthodox Christian. Um, so the Orthodoxy is defined by those initial ecumenical creeds. Those are the creeds that everybody agreed to, you know, Nicaea, Chalcedon, some of those core, key, early creeds. Um, and the, these are central, uh, essential doctrines of the faith. Um, a, an Orthodox Christian is somebody who affirms those essential doctrines. 
And G. Dave, isn't it nice to come on the program and deal with such easy topics like infant baptism, <laughs> baptizing the spirit, and, and orthodoxy? Yeah, this is trial yeah. by fire for sure. Yeah, we'll get to the harder <laughs> ones now. Um, I'm just sort of curious. We had talked a little bit about salvation and, and discipleship as well in the combination. And what would you say to somebody that say, hey, you know, uh, I got saved, and um, wh- why would I need to bother, you know, maybe entering into discipleship behaviors? Why Isn't that sort of optional at this point? I mean, I secured my salvation. Why, why would I continue to do discipleship stuff? Right. Well, I, I do think that um, this, this is a very thin sort of uh, fire insurance picture of salvation. Uh, you know, when I grew up, I was taught that um, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, and that was it. Uh, I look at 1 Corinthians 15, and it says that the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to cover our sins and rose from the dead to bring new life. And so um, the idea here that we just sort of take care of my sins, live the American dream just like any other American person, the only difference being I get to go to heaven when I die, that is, I would say, a very partial um, and limiting uh, view of salvation. Uh, Let me use an analogy. I think a beautiful analogy for salvation is a married relationship between a husband and a wife. It starts on your wedding day, and you express your loyalty and faith and trust in the other person by saying, I do, on your wedding day. And uh, the person who's asking this question has, has a sort of skinny, thin view of salvation, and a correlative, uh, thin view of marriage would be something like this. You know, I went before the pastor, and I said, um, I take you, Sandy, to be my wife, and from this day forward, and I do. Uh, now, after we've had that wedding ceremony, which was fantastic, by the way, beautiful, lots of the flowers, the music was awesome. But you know what? I'm not really interested in developing a relationship with her. I'm just going to go on and, you know, go my merry way now that I have a marriage certificate and now that I'm married. And anybody who approaches marriage that way, you'd say, hello, you don't understand what marriage is all about. And the same could be said for somebody who approaches salvation that way. It's like, what? You don't understand what it's really all about. In fact, I'm not sure uh, you're really committed here because your your concept is so off target. I think that analogy helps. Um, when I uh, you know, got married to, to my wife, Sandy, I wanted to invest in the relationship uh, now all these years uh, because it gets deeper and richer and more beautiful and more full of love as we go along. And uh, the wedding day is just, you know, kind of a drop in the bucket compared to a lifetime together of love and joy. David, um, another listener was uh, asking about uh, hearing Christians talk about and describe knowing God and being in communion with him as being an experience where you feel it deep in your soul. It's almost hard to explain. Is this a biblical example of having a relationship with Jesus? How do you explain the moments when you don't feel him? Do you push through those crisis moments, and how do you do it? Right. I I do think that uh, the analogy of marriage is really, really helpful here. Uh, We go through cycles. Um, We go through periods where, um, you know, the excitement and the buzz that we felt on our wedding day is maybe not uh, happening right now. Um, typically when there are children who are upset, uh, or financial pressures or other things, you know, I begin to forget some of the beautiful reasons why, uh, I got married perhaps. And I think the same kind of, um, experiential aspect 
um, you know, can <clears throat> can be typical of a relationship with Christ as well. Uh, in that, uh, you know, there's a sort of a euphoria of that initial experience, especially a person who's lived a difficult life and needs to have the burdens of sin and the burdens of guilt and the burdens of regret uh, lifted and to have this sense that these things are, are lifted off your shoulders. You know, it's, it's euphoric. It's wonderful. It's, it's amazing. Uh, but, you know, you don't have wedding day uh, for every single day of your, of your marriage. Uh, you also have to work through the regular things. And this is why I think it's important to understand that while experience and emotion are, are, exper- are significant and they are there to be enjoyed and we should enter into them, we can't run our lives according to them. So we have to run our lives according to our values, according to the things that we believe are true. Uh, and there will be times when we will make choices that are not what I feel like doing uh, in the moment. And of course, uh, in the long run, um, our feelings will adjust to those decisions. Uh, and so just like in marriage, I would say in salvation, we do the right thing and the feelings will somewhat follow that, not in a sort of automatic way necessarily, but, um, you know, as I mature, my emotions and my experiences become richer and deeper. And that's what we experience with Christ. Mm. You are a most awesome guest, uh, David. Yeah, Yeah, great. We'll take a little break. We'll be back with more of Dr. David Clark as we continue our fall Salvation Series. Be right back. Salvation Series, and Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself have got a very special guest on the studio line, Dr. David Clark, former dean of Bethel Seminary. Uh, we were chatting during the break, uh, David. Of course, you weren't included in on that, so I apologize. But uh, I'd like for you to continue to talk a little bit more about when our moods dictate our feelings or our, our, our understanding of salvation. Because, I'm, you know, you talk about it kind of ebbs and flows, and... Uh, that is not a happy feeling for anybody. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, let's just be uh, straight up and honest about the fact that, uh, you know, what drives our behavior in many cases uh, will be things that um, kind of emerge from the, sort of the inside of our brain, uh, things like our desires, um, things that were hurtful in the past, our wounds, the father wounds, other types of uh, wounds that we may experience. So there are all kinds of things that can have an impact on our behavior. And these things can also impact our feelings. They can affect our moods, as it were. And so um, maturity, I think, is uh, sort of a balance in which we acknowledge uh, the emotions that we're experiencing. Uh, it, it's not healthy to pretend like we don't have emotions. You know, it's not healthy to uh, pretend that we're not feeling. Even Jesus wept, uh, as as we all know. I memorized that that verse so I could go to Bible camp. It's one of the verses <laughs> on my list, you know. So um, emotions are a positive thing. They're a good thing. They actually drive us to to uh, to action. 
uh, the emotion of joy, for example, uh, you know, can uh, cause me to be inspired and to work hard toward a good goal and so forth. Um, but negative emotions, uh, you know, or bad moods, as it were, uh, are things that we are expected to uh, control. That doesn't mean we pretend that we don't have them. It means we acknowledge that we do have them, but we gain the capacity uh, to overcome them and not to allow them to dominate our life. And um, as, as we were saying before, the person who has the ability through habit uh, to, um, to do the right thing, even when they don't feel like doing it, uh, that person will grow in maturity. And uh, the, the moods, I believe, the negative emotions uh, can gradually d- dissipate if we develop the capacity uh, to do the right thing in spite of how we feel in the moment. So it's a balance. We don't want to say we don't have feelings because we do. But on the other hand, we have to be careful not to allow our feelings to control uh, what we're doing. So. Hmm. And David, when you're talking about sort of a lifetime of, of uh, choosing those sort of right habits and, and the ebbs and flows uh, of a lifetime, and I'm thinking about Paul, who at the end of his life, he talked about that he, he was finished the, he finished the race and he was finishing filled with faith in those moments. I mean, what, what would you um, hope for for a lifetime of, of this kind of discipleship journey and partnering with God in such a variety of ways in our life? I mean, what kind of person would you hope to be and be becoming as you're you know, moving into the latter stages of life? Right. Well, being a, a young person, of course, I don't think a lot about uh, the end of life just yet. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, think uh, I think it's always wise to, um, you know, begin with the end in view. Uh, anytime you're thinking sort of strategically about uh, something that's important, let's say the life of an organization or uh, you know, the lay, laying out a project at work or whatever. I mean, I'm a big believer in really specifying where do we want this thing to end, and then let's kind of reverse engineer and so get the steps that will get us to that to that conclusion. And, um, you know, when you think about people who come to the end of life and they look back and they've lived a life that is honorable and good and worthy, um, there is a sense of satisfaction, a sense of great joy in that. Uh, there is obviously some sadness in every life, but there's also the sense that God walked with you through that sadness, uh, through the difficulties of that we all inevitably will face in this life. And so <clears throat> from my perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense to just kind of imagine, uh, even to do some sort of you know mental um, reflecting on, what, what do I want someone to say at my funeral, for instance? Um, and that could be quite a motivator. You know, do I want my children to say this or that? Uh, do I want the pastor to say, well, we all know, you know, that David was quite a character. Um, and if he were here, you know, he would tell you he didn't really live life like he wanted to, but at least he trusted in Jesus. I, mean, I don't want the pastor to say that. I, mm-hmm. want, I want folks to acknowledge that I loved my family well. Uh, even when it was difficult, uh, that I was generous to my friends, that I committed myself to my work, that uh, Christ was the center of my life. And um, so if all those things are what I want someone to say about me at my funeral, then how shall I deal with the fact that, uh, you know, somebody just stole $1,000 from me? And uh, how can I walk through this little crisis today 
in view of the fact that I want to be the kind of person at the end, uh, you know, who is known for honesty, truth, generosity, faith, love, hope. Um, and I think that that, uh, you know, that end of life perspective viewed back into the crisis I'm experiencing today can be a great motivator uh, to do the right thing. So, David, this extravagant gift of of salvation, and we talk about it, you know, every week now for about seven or eight weeks we've been doing this. I don't ever want this hour to pass without a listener uh, hearing the gospel and then also getting a chance to uh, get right with God. And I have sort of developed the tradition of uh, asking the, our guests if they're comfortable, and I know you would certainly be, as everyone has been, to, uh, you know, in a, a very short amount of time, uh, maybe just help people understand this gift that they're receiving and then invite them to do so. That is a, a beautiful invitation, and uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity. And I would just say that uh, God has created us uh, to experience the most incredible joy of being in a relationship with Him. So think about uh, the happiest moments of life. Uh, it would likely be when you were in love, when you had a deep friendship, when you were spending with time with someone that cared for you and you cared for them. And God wants you to experience exactly that, only to do it in a richer, deeper way than we ever could imagine. And the way he invites us to do that is to simply uh, give ourselves in, in faith uh, to him. So to me, it's very much like starting this relationship is very much like starting a marriage. And we've made that analogy already in this program. And uh, so the invitation is to say, you know, I, David, take you, Jesus, to be my friend, to be my savior, to be the one who brings joy in my life. And I'm going to have and hold and be with you uh, for, from now on in sickness and health, richer for poor, uh, whatever the case may be. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus will commit uh, to being in relationship with you. And Jesus has said to me, I, Jesus, take you, David, to be my friend and to have a relationship with me. And that relationship overcomes loneliness, guilt, regret, pain, sorrow, all the difficulties of life. Uh, you get to walk through it with a person who will be the closest friend you'll ever have. So the invitation would be, will you say to Jesus, I do. I accept you as my Lord and as my friend. Yeah, it's a boy, David, it's a beautiful invitation when you, when you say it in that way. Um, it's not just some exchange we're, we're doing with God. And, and to the listeners, I, I um, there's there's not a more beautiful invitation that we can receive in life, right, David? That that God is actually that for us. Um, that that insane that I do um, that He comes right alongside of us. Yeah, I think that's the great thing about it is that uh, you know we are asked to to make a commitment of faith and trust uh, of loyalty to Jesus. Um, but the great thing is that Christ has uh, agreed to make a commitment of loyalty to us. Uh, and he will be with us. He promises to be our friend. He promises to be our forgiver. He promises to be our leader and to walk through all the difficulties of life with us and to bring us to eternal joy. And uh, so it's a mutual thing, uh, just like a, uh, a bride and a groom. Each one commits to the other. And when you do, the result is what the Bible calls a covenant love relationship. And that is the best and most beautiful thing. The opposite of that would be absolute loneliness. 
And uh, if you've ever been lonely, you know what the opposite of what covenant love relationship would mm-hmm. be. Uh, and in, instead of loneliness, uh, God offers us love. David, it's just been wonderful having you on the show. Uh, thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, I'm going to send you a large... And then, uh, so thank you again. I'm not making a commitment to any large anything, but you know what I'm saying, Peter. <laughs> Whatever it'll be, it'll be lavish. Well, I'm yeah, sure. I mean, you got excited I was, there. Uh, I was yeah, just yeah. waiting with bated breath to find out what the next word was going to be. Me too. <laughs> That's why I didn't fill in the blank. But thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. It's just you're a, a, a treasure. Well, it's been great to be with you, and uh, the time has flown by. I am grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. Have a great rest of the night, and thanks for joining us on the program. You bet. Take care now. That was Dr. David Clark, and if you uh, said yes, and I do, and this is the first time you've said I do to Jesus, you are a new believer. You have joined the family. You've been adopted into God's family. You've been born again, and if if that's you, uh, send me an email, and I'll send you a, a new believer's Bible. I've got several on my desk, and I want nothing more than to get rid of all of them, because that means uh, people are saying I do. So email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Uh, just send me your name and address and say, I said I do, and I would love to get that Bible. But uh, bill at myfaithradio.com. That wraps up our show for the day. It's really been a great uh, day. Thank you to Dr. Peter Kapsner for uh, spending quite a bit of time in the studio with me today. I appreciate that. Delight to be with you, always. Yeah. And uh, if you missed any of the show, you're definitely going to want to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the podcast as you lay your head on the pillow tonight. Know that God's working out his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.